With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino. With cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Well, welcome all you wiretappers out there. Good to have you back here in the studio, Gangland Wire. I've got a, a particularly special treat for you. If any of you guys saw that movie with Brian Cranston, The Infiltrator, well, I've got the real infiltrator on the line here, uh, Robert Mazur. Welcome, Robert. It's really a pleasure for me to have you on here. Well, and thank you very much for inviting me. So, Robert Mazur, I, I, as we just had a little conversation before, guys, uh, I'll tell you again, Robert, uh, you guys that, that are able to live that undercover life over a period of time, it's just, uh, I, I find it amazing. You know, you've got two books out now about your uh uh, your exploits, the infiltrator and in which they made into the movie with Brian Cranston. I bet everybody's seen that. I know I've seen it twice now. And uh, I had to go watch it again because I saw it when it first came out. It's a, it's a heck of a story. And now you have the betrayal, the true story of my breast with death in the world of narcos and launderers. So, uh, you know, Robert, tell me a little bit and tell the guys here a little bit about your life before going into the customs. Well, um, you know, I, I really started my uh, law enforcement career um, stumbling across a unintended and stumbling across a, uh, a co-op job in, in uh, college, uh, offering summer and uh, a few days dur during the week uh, at what was then called the IRS Intelligence Division. Now it's the Criminal <laughs> Investigation Division. Yeah, an intelligence division of IRS is kind of an oxymoron. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> I, I've, I've worked with those guys. I actually had yeah. a couple of friends with them. Some of them are good. Some of them aren't so good. So Right, right. Yeah. But I, you know what? I'll tell you from a forensic accounting uh, training standpoint, that was probably the most valuable training that uh, that I ever got. Yeah. Uh, I, I went through college as a business administration finance major with everything but one course to get an accounting degree. And um, I, I was thought I was headed to become a CPA. And then I got this co-op job and I showed up in Manhattan in the office and quickly learned that, hey, these were the guys that got Al Capone. <laughs> yeah. These are these are the guys that actually follow the money. Uh, and they were working on major drug traffickers, corrupt politicians, organized crime guys. Yeah. And the one case that really caught my attention, our guys were doing the IRS guys. Now, back then, I, I was the guy who made coffee and copies. Yeah. But but <laughs> but they they were doing the work and and they were doing surveillances um, of couriers for a guy by the name of Frank Lucas, who was the biggest mm -hmm. heroin trafficker in, in New York at the time. Uh, Denzel Washington. Uh, played him uh, in a film. What they were watching is they were watching an aptly named bank called Chemical Bank that <laughs> was receiving army duffel bags full of cash. And that bank 
had been put on notice six months before because they had been doing the same type of thing for some uh, traditional Italian-American organized crime guys. And it was the same people doing it again and not filing the currency transaction reports. So they put that case together on the money side of it and prosecuted some of the bankers. And um, and and it really grasped grasped my attention that, you know, gosh, if you follow the money, it takes you to command and control. It takes you to the people who are leading these criminal organizations. And and I just became very enthralled with uh, the idea of of attacking major organized crime from that perspective. And I did that with um, IRS for a while, but then I got on a joint task force called Operation Greenback in Florida. Uh, It was IRS and Customs Office of Enforcement, which is now Homeland Security Investigations. And and, and we were attacking money launderers servicing the Medellin cartel. Uh, Back in the mid uh, to late 80s, I mean, the Medellin cartel was off the rails. We had machine gun fire at Dadeland Mall, people getting killed everywhere. And, and so we were, we were going to go after the money side. And we realized that we were having limited success and we needed a new tool in our toolbox. And that new tool was the long-term undercover technique. Thank goodness, um, I had great leadership and great trainers who put together, I think, one of the best undercover schools. I went to the IRS undercover school, but then I went through the customs undercover school when we realized we were going to need to do this long-term um, infiltration. And I was kind of the, one of the more likely candidates because I wasn't unlike my colleagues, a criminal justice major. I was a guy who I, I had the business administration finance. I'd worked in a bank, worked in a brokerage firm. So I kind of knew that world and it wasn't going to be scary to me. So uh, I went through training, which I think was outstanding. And one of my mentors through that training is, is a man who uh, we've, my wife and I have become good friends with him and his wife, a, a fellow by the name of Joe Pistone, yeah. who the, the book in the movie Donnie Brasco is based upon. But Joe was a, uh, a guest speaker, along with some other long-term undercovers, and they had psychologists involved in the process, which is very important, and opened our eyes, my eyes, um, to, to the dangers of working um, deep cover, living a double life for years on end. And I credit that uh, with my not crashing and burning because I know, unfortunately, so many former colleagues who have crashed yeah. and burned. So once we, once we, uh, I got certified, of course, you have to, you have to take a psychological test to get into the school. Somehow I snuck through <laughs> and, 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 and then um, uh, wound up getting trained and, then my leadership gave me 18 months to put together what I think is one of the more sophisticated undercover uh, money laundering operations uh, in the infiltrator story. Unlike any others, I was embedded in real businesses. I had some outstanding informants. And as you know, informants can either make or break yeah. law enforcement careers. They've broken a lot of them. Yeah. Uh, but um, really good ones. Most of the really good sources that I had were people I prosecuted who recognized that I treated them fairly. Uh, I, you know, all I demanded from them was if they wanted to get substantial assistance, they had to tell the truth and they had to completely um, give up all of their assets. They had to do all a a number of things, but there were two guys who were formerly associates of a organized crime family in New York who were important sources in in the infiltrator story in the movie, uh, a guy, plays the role of Dominic uh, there, who's 
plays my cousin slash bodyguard and a former uh, bodyguard for a capo who was a source of mine actually played that role. Well, uh, you know, I, I thought that guy seemed pretty realistic, that, but not so much actor is, is like yeah. a real kind of a tough guy. I, I was yeah. Im- impressed with his acting abilities, but he was just playing his real person. Huh? <laughs> well, you know, interesting. He's from Ireland and he's got a thick Irish brogue. Yeah. And he but when he gets on stage and he's you know, I mean, he he's just amazing. He's an mm-hmm. absolutely amazing actor. Um, but the real Dominic um, was in that same vein, uh, you know, there's some things that no matter how good you are as an undercover, uh, you can't do. Yeah. And, um, this guy who used to be a knock around guy, um, really did it well. And, and, um, I remember I met, uh, one of the times Roberto El Cayeno came and stayed with me in Florida. He's played in the movie by, uh, Benjamin Brett. Yeah. So Roberto is there and he, for the first time he meets Dominic and he came in with a cover of, you know, well, you need to sign, sign some documents and Hey boss, I really just need a, a minute or two with you, blah, 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 blah. We talked to the side. And then I went back to the table and, and Alcano goes to me, let me guess Sicilian <laughs> um, born in Brooklyn and started stealing cars when he was 13. I said, I said, you got two out of three, right? Roberto, he was 12. So, oh man. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, I had a lot of assets. Uh, I, I was embedded in an investment company, a mortgage brokerage business. We had an air charter service with a private jet and I had, uh, I was embedded in a brokerage firm, uh, with a seat on the New York stock exchange and a, and a jewelry chain with 30 locations on the East coast. So, I didn't have to be the best undercover agent. Uh, I was blessed with great training. I was blessed with leadership that gave me the opportunity to put this thing together. Uh, And then, um, you know, really the credit to the infiltrator story goes to about at the height of the operation, about 250 agents, local law enforcement, analysts, prosecutors, and administrative people who who really all pulled in the same direction and and did a wonderful job. Yeah. You know, that's the thing that we we watch these movies and, and, and we and it looks like, you know, the undercover, he does all this work and and just walks away. And all of a sudden the case gets made. And, and you know, in real life, it's not like that. You go out and take the risk and start gathering the evidence and point those, all those guys where to go. But then there's a whole army of people that's got to put all that together. It, it's uh, you just don't do it by yourself, do you? No, you don't. And uh, one of the things we did. I wrote the undercover proposal and the operational plan, and I am I I identified the prosecutor that was uh, ultimately going to take this thing to trial as a, a legal consultant during the course of the two year undercover op. So many times, prosecutors inherit cases uh, yeah. with flaws, and uh, and this was an opportunity for the prosecutor, you know, not to tell us what to do necessarily, but certainly to guide us away from the types of problems that we might otherwise uh, create for ourselves. There are so many things that gifted defense attorneys do mm-hmm. to unfortunately attempt to embarrass law enforcement and undercover agents in the eyes of jurors and knowing what those techniques are, which is part of one of the training uh, sessions that I do for law enforcement, knowing what those are and how to avoid them and, and how to make sure that you are thinking trial from day one is, is an extraordinarily uh, important uh, thing. When before we started this interview, you had asked me about, you know, what motivates people to do these things. And uh, I have to admit that 
I, when, when I was doing the infiltrator, ultimately, when I realized that, oh my gosh, I had four or five conversations pass the information on, we seized a ton of cocaine, uh, we seized all kinds of money, we seized, um, I, I was getting information about Manuel Noriega's hidden millions, uh, I was finding out about banks that were illegally owned by a foreign bank, um, and, and uncovering the, that seventh largest privately held bank in the world is involvement in servicing just about every criminal from every walk of life. And truly for me, because so many people go, oh yeah, didn't you really get mesmerized by the fancy restaurants and the thousand dollar a night hotels? And I, and I said, you don't get it. <laughs> I could have been in a McDonald's. It really didn't matter. I had two brains going at the same time. I'm trying to act like this person I'm not. Um, although most of the characteristics of that person I purposely built so that they paralleled my real life. It was an Italian-American from the Northeast with a, a business and banking background. Um, the only thing that I, I was lying about is who I, my real name <laughs> and, who, <laughs> and, and, and who I was really working for. But um, actually, and it took me a decade or so after the case was over to realize this, information became my heroine. I mean, I had to find the next biggest thing. I had to get the next biggest guy. Uh, if it wasn't bigger and badder, you know, I wasn't getting, I wasn't doing my job. And I, I got this impression that I had climbed through the portal of a real world into the underworld at a level that maybe nobody else was ever going to get the right. chance to do. And I had to maximize that as best as I possibly could, because eventually that portal was going to close as time went on. Um, and I'm not suggesting that this is what your long-term undercover should be thinking in their head. I'm just confessing to what I really, what I really was. And that is that the mission became so important that if succeeding in the mission caused me to lose my family, then it wouldn't make me the happiest man in the world, but it was for the mission. Yeah. And if I had to lose my job because of something I had to do uh, and it was part of the mission. And then yeah. if I, if I had to lose my life, that's the last thing I would ever want to give up, but yeah. um, it was for the mission. You really need to make sure. And I, I'm very fortunate because uh, I, you know, my wife and I met, she was 16. I was 17. And other than the year and a half, she dumped me. Um, she's been my best friend all my life. And, and um, my kids were nine and 11. So I had a lot of rooted things that were extraordinarily important to me that I was not going to endanger. I think that made a difference. Plus the fact that you really want to make sure that the spouse of the undercover is a person who has their own professional career. My wife's an educator. So she, she was focused on that. My yeah. kids, my kids are gymnasts and anybody who's been a gymnast that competes at the <laughs> national level knows that that's like a full-time job. And, and the other important thing was that my family, my mom and dad, my brother and his family live close to my wife. She had a support system there. Yeah. You know, that, that really made a difference. Uh, interesting. Yeah. That's uh, that stuff is, is, is really important for a guy to keep his head on straight. Even if you're just kind of like going over in the city and, and, you know, kind of hanging out and drinking in, in those bars and you got to come back home to the suburbs and lead this other life. It's, uh, on a small level, I understand what you mean. You better have a good, solid other life to 
fall back on. Mm-hmm. So now in that book, uh, or in the Indian Filtrator, I'm asked one last question about that. Uh, the guy it was a John Lizard. Uh, I can never pronounce his last name. Like Wazamo, John like Wazamo. Now the guy that that, that he was. Now that I, I never did quite understand. He was an agent, but. He he was portrayed to be more of a criminal than an agent in many ways. It seemed yeah. like. <laughs> well, he portrayed Amir Abreu, who is my partner. Okay. And Amir played kind of the street thug guy working for the mob connected guy with all the connections, and and we built the undercover operation really in two stages. Um, when I first designed it, Amir was strictly the undercover agent, the lead undercover agent. Mm -hmm. And we were dealing with some lower level money brokers. When I say lower level, lower level in their ability to be able to to launder, but extremely high in their contacts. They went, this one guy, Gonzalo Mora, had gone to school with uh, Fabio Ochoa. He knew the Ochoa family very well. They They were sitting board members of the Medellin cartel. And he knew all those people. Our approach was, uh, for Emir to simply say, listen, I can help you. My boss is you know, willing to open up accounts, but he never wants to meet you. You have to deal through me. And we kept that on all the time. And he would always throw in, you know, like, man, if you could ever convince my boss to, uh, to deal directly with you, uh, the rivers of money that he could handle would be great. But he has this huge responsibility to his own family in New York. And, um, you know, that's priority number one. And he doesn't want to be known. By family, you meant the mafia family in New York. Yeah. 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 And, and of course I would always deny that with these guys because, you know, anybody who's in the mob doesn't believe, you know, they don't, they say there is no mob. (laughs) Right. So, uh, you know, and I remember Gonzalo Mora asking me one day we were walking past uh, Umberto's clam bar in downtown <laughs> in, in Little Italy, and that's yeah. where, yeah, that's yeah, that's He's, where uh, he said, Well, who really killed Joey Gallo? You know, that's right, <laughs> yeah, that was that's where Joey Gallo got whacked. So, <laughs> so we went by, and I uh, and all I said was, uh, you know, gee, that place has gotten famous ever since they killed one of my, my one of the people I know, yeah, and, and then he goes, Well, you know, what about the mafia? Does the mafia exist? I said, The mafia is only in freaking television, are you crazy? <laughs> No way. There's no way that that, you know, just because my last name ends in a vowel, you think I'm a a mobster? That's crazy. Yeah, it was smart. That was smart. So I I guess what what, in that one last question, let's move on to uh, the betrayal. Uh, What was maybe the uh, the single incident that that really put that rose a hair on the back of your neck that was that you found out later was was a real threat to you yeah um you know we don't do these kinds of cases as you've said alone and unfortunately uh, especially when you're doing a money laundering case and and the the basic storyline here is that the cartel has couriers in most of the major cities and every day they're stuck with millions and millions and millions of dollars that they they want to get washed so their courier would meet with Amir or um, another undercover agent because we had uh, undercovers in several different cities who, in the eyes of the bad guys, worked for Amir. So Amir didn't have to go to pick up money on his own all the time, although he did use our jet. Um, <laughs> that's a funny story. He used our jet to go to Houston 
I, I'd given them, I've given them, I just want to sidetrack on this one funny story before I get to the okay. hair razor. It sounds good. So, yeah. So Amir, Amir, um, I'd gotten him a credit card to pay for the fuel jet fuel. So he goes to use it and he had, it had been a while. It had been very recent that he'd taken another trip and, and they said, well, I'm sorry, your, you know, your credit cards tapped out. So Amir's got these two suitcases and the guy's standing there with him. He goes, well, how much do I owe you? He goes, Oh, it's like uh, $1,800. He goes, all right, wait a minute. So he unzips this suitcase that had a million dollars in it. He counts out 1800 He gives it to him. And he threw him like another 50 or something for a tip. And um, he goes, now fuel it. So we thought, oh, man, they're going to turn us in. So yeah. the next time we landed at that fixed base operator in Houston, yeah. they rolled out a red carpet. <laughs> they brought him a tray of fruit. He was like a god to them. So there goes the private sector and, and their uh, willingness to blow the whistle. But, um, but getting back to hair raising, you know, in New York, and I begged them. I had just come back from Paris. I had a meeting. Amir and I met with some very high people in the Medellin cartel. The highest one was a guy by the name of Santiago Uribe, who was the principal consigliere and lawyer for Pablo Escobar and other guys who were there were also very, very high. And we were there for the purposes of them analyzing our money laundering methodologies. And they decided that they loved it and they wanted to start a situation where we would be receiving as much as a hundred million dollars. Of course, not all at one time, this is going to be like a million and two million to $2 million a day um, in, in pickups on the streets in New York. I begged the agents in New York to please realize how much smarter than us, the bad guys are, that they're going to have counter surveillance out there and that they had already schooled me about what they would be looking for. And what they would be looking for would be gringos, white guys who were in their late twenties, early (laughs) thirties in good shape um, with with jeans. They'd have pullover shirts, solid color with, with, uh, collars, fanny fanny packs where their guns would be, and they would have jogging shoes on. So I go into the, I hardly ever went into any of the uh, offices, but this was so important that I, I decided that I wanted to go in and forewarn them. And I get in there and here's a room full of guys in jeans (laughs) with pullover (laughs) shirts and had everything. So I tell them this stuff and they go, listen. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We're we're from New York. We know how to work here. You know, like, who do you think you are kind of thing? So uh, sure enough, um, we get maybe a million, maybe 2 million the next day, we're getting ready to get some more money. And all of a sudden, a phone call comes into Amir. Um, It's the broker, Gonzalo, who's there with Moncada. Now, Gerardo Moncada was Pablo Escobar's uh, principal manager of his routes. If your listeners who watch Narcos, the last two series of year one, they talk about 
Gerardo Moncada and Fernando Galeano. Those were my two major clients when wow. I was laundering for uh, Medellin. And so Moncada's in the background screaming that I had to be a DEA undercover agent because they had counter surveillance out there and they see all these feds and they had the, the tag numbers, descriptions, the whole bit. So now I got to figure out a way to walk out of that. And, and, and so I asked for a meeting uh, and I had a meeting with a guy by the name of Rudolf Armbrecht. He was a German Colombian um, whose parents, whose father had come over right after world war II, um, and, and, and decided to settle in, in uh, Medellin. He was actually in charge of buying the Medellin cartels air force Rockwell 1000s and 980s. He bought so many of them. He caused their, their, their price to rise in the market. Um, they wow. are spec- they are really important smuggling planes because they can take off and land on short runways. They can handle um, uh, gravel runways with no problem. They have extended tanks uh, naturally that are within them uh, and they can, they can handle a heavy payload. So he's, he and I had kind of become friends and, and uh, in his mind. And so I said, listen, I, I, I want a meeting with him, just me and him. We need to talk about this. Some undercover agents might have thought, well, you know, it's time for me to pound my chest. I'm going to tell them, you know, it has to be you guys, not us guys, you know, blah, 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 blah. So, no, I didn't do that at all. Um, I met with Rudy. Uh, It's probably about one in the morning in a not so nice area of Miami. I begged my cover, my my contact agent there, no surveillance, just call me uh, and I'll call out and leave code, uh, you know, that everything is okay. So I meet with Rudy. I had some Swiss bank records for him and some corporate records for him that were in my briefcase, but I didn't bring the briefcase in because it had a recorder in it. And I thought I was going to get shaken down. So I get in the room and um, it's only Rudy and I'm talking to Rudy about it. And I go, listen, what you've told me is extremely important. I, this is what I think we need to do. We need to shut down anything and everything in New York. We need to closely look at all the people who are out there. Then maybe we will set something up to trap them to see if we can figure out who the rat is. And then if it's on your side, I expect you to eliminate the problem. And if it's on mine, I can guarantee you I will. But let's not do any more work there because you know we all have too much at risk. And then he goes, well, where's your, where's the records? I go, oh gosh, it's in the briefcase. I'll go get it. I, I came in, I threw the briefcase on the, on the bed and um, he kept looking at it like it was a time bomb or something. And eventually <laughs> I, I opened it up so that I was looking into it and he was directly opposite me. So he only saw the back of it and it had hidden inside of it um, a Nagra recorder, which a lot of your listeners will probably remember. Um, great, great recording equipment, yeah, but it's big and it's heavy. Yeah. I had told the office that the, the Velcro that kept the hidden compartment closed was starting to give and they were going to change it, but I guess they didn't get to it. <laughs> so I open up the briefcase and um, in my eyes, I see he doesn't see it because he's on the opposite side. I see the Nagra falls into the briefcase with a nest of wires <laughs> and I'm trying to act calm, putting this thing back together again. 
I finally, he gets impatient and starts to come around. And just as he came around, I just got it back together again. <laughs> and, um, and I gave him the records. And then later in that same meeting, he gave me the, uh, the speech of, um, well, I just want you to know that if you should turn out to be someone other than you say you are or who you are, there is not a hole deep enough on this planet that you can hide from us. So that kind of got me, uh, that got me a little nervous. My hair was on fire inside my brain, but you know, you got to, I tell you, if, if, if you show the slightest amount of apprehension or fear, uh, it's kind of like walking down the street with somebody who's got a dog, an aggressive dog on, you know, if, if you don't act like you're afraid of him, chances are he's not going to go after you. But if you do, He's going to go after you. And, and so you've got to realize that you've got to take those chances with, with these people, because you could be Mm self-defeating if you, if you uh, show too much um, apprehension and concern. Wow. That's a a heck of a story. They used that. They used a little bit of that briefcase thing in the, uh, in the movie with Brian Cranston. So uh, yeah, they twist, they twist it a little bit around. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Well, folks, that was great. That Robert Major, I tell you what, he put himself in some situations and you need to go check out the infiltrator. I think it's on Netflix or Amazon prime one of them. Just Google that and, and watch the infiltrator. And next week he's going to come back and tell us about his next case, which I can't even believe he went back into this whole genre, this whole subculture with Colombians and, and drug dealing and washing money. But he did started working out of the country down in Panama, going back and forth between Panama and the United States. But what he didn't know, as things started going kind of funky and people seemed awfully suspicious, is he had a DEA agent that was assigned to the case that was ratting him out the whole time. So uh, come on back and and you're going to hear some more hair-raising stories from the real life of Robert Major, the, uh, the real infiltrator and soon to be the real subject of a movie, I believe, called The Betrayal. So thanks a lot, folks. Uh, Don't forget to hit me up on Venmo at Gangland Wire. I got my uh, Buy Me a Cup of Coffee app. I've got my website. Check my website out. I've got stuff for sale, you know, T-shirts and that kind of thing. Uh, uh, you can make a donation on PayPal. You can see what kind of uh, reward you'll get. If, if you make a big enough donation and you want to be included on my monthly private Zoom call, why do that? And, and I'll make sure you get put on that email list. I usually do it about once a month, usually on Tuesday nights at, at eight o'clock, kind of get East Coast and West Coast time. I've got a good friend down on the West Coast, longtime fan that he can't get home in time. But I don't know, God, if I wait till nine o'clock, uh, seven o'clock East or West Western time, it's uh, 10 o'clock Eastern time. So what are you going to do? Anyhow, thanks a lot. Uh, don't forget, watch out for motorcycles. And if you uh, have a friend or a relative that has a problem with PTSD, um, help them get some help. Uh, if you're a veteran, uh, the uh, VA has a website that has a lot of information on it and a hotline. So thanks a lot, folks.